I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shirley. Coming up on today's episode, we're talking cartoons. I went to the Elwood Atfield Political Cartoon of the Year Awards down in Westminster and we will hear from some of the winners and presenting the awards Angela Rayner and Jacob Rees-Mogg so that's coming up in just a moment first though as ever we kick off with our economist panel and on a Thursday it's Night of the Marriott with Indian Eye and James Marriott The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Uh, well, let's start with the, uh, the the story, which is on the front pages. It's leading the news. Uh, the, the story of Ngozi Fulani uh, went to Buckingham Palace for a reception uh, to discuss, well, in a role as a, a domestic abuse uh, campaigner, uh, has this conversation with Lady Susan Hussey, who repeatedly asked, where do you really come from? She's now uh, resigned, stepped back, been sacked, depending on how you how you cut it. Um, India, what's your your take on this on this story? Everywhere, it's one of these classic things where something something awkward happened between two people. One of them's resigned. Should be the end of it. Everyone's got a view on it. So, what's yours? Uh, my view on it, as somebody who has uh, a Pakistani mother, is that it is not a question you ask of people. It is entirely right that she resigned. Um, and I initially, when I read the story, I felt sorry for her because she's old. But then I thought about it and I thought about my mother being asked that question 40 years ago when Susan Hussey would have been 43. You know, it was wrong then. If in the intervening 40 or 50 or even 60 years, she hasn't realised that, that, that the reason the question is so awful in my view, is it makes you feel like a fraud. It makes you feel like you're lying about where you're from and like your interlocutor is going to find you out. And so it calls into question your right to be in the room, your right to have an opinion. It's completely, completely awful. The other thing is, you don't need to know where anybody is from. If she'd said straight away, my grandparents or my parents were from Jamaica or Ghana or Malawi or wherever, what, what, what is the person asking the question hoping to gain from that, apart from a kind of gotcha? Are they going to go, oh, Ghana, I've never been there? I mean, what's the point? Why do you need to know? Why do you need to know? The person clearly has... African ancestry or Asian ancestry or whatever ancestry, you can see it by the colour of their skin. That's all you need to know. Yeah, you That's don't, all you, you need to know. The, the one thing, because people talk, keep talking about the age thing, is that if 
if anybody's supposed to know how to behave in polite society, you'd think it was ladies in waiting in Buckingham Palace. It's Amelia, not. She's represented the royal family for sixty years. And she no... stood in for the Queen. Come on, you know she was married. This isn't an old lady of hundred and twenty who lives in a cottage in the woods all by herself and has never met anybody not white and not from her village. You know, this is somebody who's travelled the world representing the Queen and the royals, who has. Diplomatic skills, you would imagine, you would imagine, which is why she's in the job. So it's yeah. really, really inexcusable. So her age, I'm sorry for her that she's an old lady who got it wrong and who has had this kind of ignominious end to a long career. But I also think, what's she been doing for the last 60 years? And is she representative? You know, is this is this how ladies in waiting are, waiting are? Is this Buckingham Palace employs, I think, I don't know, about 800 people. Um, and, you know, the other thing that annoys me about it is it makes me feel sympathetic to Meghan Markle, which generally I'm not. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I think on the race stuff, she may have an extremely valid point. But yeah, you sort of wonder how many other times this has happened. And, he, you know, the, the, the person on the receiving end of, of conversations like this has not had the, the confidence that Ngozi clearly had to, to sort of put it mm. out there and say this is To call it a, out. To Absolutely. call it out and say it isn't acceptable. Absolutely. And particularly when it comes from somebody, you know, somebody who's grand or who's in a position of authority, you know, it's it's absolutely mortifying. And the other thing I would say about some of the comments you say um, have been coming in is that this is really important. White people don't get to adjudicate on what is or isn't racist. They, you don't, as a white person, get to say, oh, that's an overreaction, that wasn't racist. You don't know. It's never happened to you. You don't know how the person feels. Only the person knows how they feel. And if they tell you that they feel belittled and hurt and upset, you listen to them. And I mean, you're 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 completely right. And yeah, I'm going to stop reading out the stupid text messages because they're they're stupid. Yeah, I mean, really. Let's yeah. bring in let's bring in James because James, you you've written a lot about social media and uh and the sort of the rush for everyone to sort of have a take. And it feels a bit like that. Looking at some of the texts and tweets that are coming in, if you look at some of the responses to Ngozi's original post. Is people, I don't know why people feel the need to sort of rush in, but knowing half the facts, they weren't there, but it sort of feels important to say, this is, you know, this is this has all been blown out of proportion, or I know more about this incident than anyone involved, given that Ngozi's given her account of it, and Buckingham Palace have agreed and, and removed uh, the, the woman responsible. But there's something about the psyche of, now everyone's got to have a take. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of feel like, you know, how, the, the kind of sentiment with which so many of my columns conclude, which is just, oh God, Twitter, everyone, be, everyone shut up. Um, yeah, you're, you're quite right. I mean, I thought everything India said was correct. And, you know, you know, she's obviously given her account of the conversation, how it made her feel. She was there. She, you know, presumably saw all kinds of things about tone, about how, you know, about how she was treated that, you know, you, 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 could, you could never know unless you were there. So the idea that suddenly you can kind of overrule you know, what she has happened to her based on your particular version of what you would like to have happened is, yeah, it is, as you say, completely kind of mad. This, you know, little kind of tiny, presumably very kind of sounds quite brief interaction now suddenly just having, you know, all this stuff sort of piled on it from everywhere is, yeah, I mean, it's very depressing, isn't it? But I suppose we should not be, we should be depressed, but not surprised. Also, don't touch people's hair. Well, exactly. That's, <laughs> I mean, that alone is weird. 
If yeah. I, you know, if I, not that I'll ever be invited, if I went to Buckingham Palace and somebody came up and ruffled my hair, yeah, I'd think that was it. deeply weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting clue to the tone of the interaction as well, isn't it? That, you know, it kind of says, yes, this this is kind of patrician, aristocratic. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, it's absolutely. a sort of, you know, old lady kind of blustering around. Because you said it was to see what her name was, but just... Ask, ask oh, yeah. what's your yeah. name? Obviously, very you know keen to ask other questions. Yeah, um, uh, and also that has that 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 carries with it the suggestion that she was uh, she was she wanted to see her name in case her name sounded like it wasn't from Hackney. You know, it's just all terrible. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, and it's just oh, what the hell? No, I can't even understand some of the nonsense. Anyway, somebody's been in touch. Say India is bang on. So, oh, yes, good. I agree. And, I think so too. And somebody else has texted Thanks. in saying goodbye, Times Radio. So make it that way. <laughs> yes. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Um, uh, right. Let's, I'll tell you what, let's move on because there are other things, uh, other things to talk about. Let's talk about second homes. Uh, the Times are reporting a plan that could mean you ain't need to get planning permission, uh, planning consent in order to have a second home to turn a property from a, from a first home basically into a holiday home. Uh, to try and sort of dial down the Tory rebellion on planning rules. Um, and the second home is a big problem here. Where you are, India? Yeah, they are actually. Um, I'm in Suffolk, so you know Suffolk, Norfolk. You're never, ne never very far away from the sea, from the seaside. And uh, entire communities have been completely hollowed out, completely hollowed out by people having second homes. People who came from those communities can no longer afford to live there. There aren't enough afford. There isn't enough affordable housing being built for them to live even in the vicinity. And so people are displaced. Communities are displaced. And also, you know, obviously, communities full of second homes are empty a lot of the time, particularly at this time of year. Um, and so they're incredibly depressing to be in yeah. because they're all kind of empty and ghost-like and none of the houses are lit up, although that might be to do with saving electricity. But generally, none of the houses are lit up, which means the shops feel gloomy and empty. And then in the summer, it's a mad rush. And if you are reasonably local, you can't kind of get to the beach because it's full of tourists. So I think it's a, I, I think it's a good I, I mean, provided this applies, which I, which I think it does only to um, very kind of densely touristy areas i think it's a very good idea i'm for it and james as a as a, as a young well, a resident young person who'd, li who'd like to have one home never mind two uh presumably what, what, what do you think about this idea yeah i mean i think india has access to my soul this morning she's just she's saying everything. <laughs> we are as one james <laughs> we are as one <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I, I've talked about this before. I always think of my sister who lives in the Lake District um, in, a, in a sort of big house that's been turned into lots of flats. And she lives in an incredibly dingy, incredibly small flat at the top of this house. She's the only person who actually lives in this entire building. Every other flat in that house is a holiday rental. They're almost always empty. So she just lives in this like weird eerie build this weird eerie building that she's the only person who actually lives there in and in the lake district and so so much of it is as india says is like that and it's just depressing and you're like well do we want these to be real communities or do you want these to be just kind of you know countryside disneyland you only go there, go there for holiday it's not yeah, a real yeah. place i found that really depressing um and as the other point that india makes again my sister you know has said that she's spoken to you know a few like people who've lived, you know, old lakeland families, people who've lived in the lakes for, I mean, for literally centuries. 
and then now you know the first generation is just being forced out because they can't afford to live there anymore they're being forced to move away from their families I just don't I don't know I don't see how that's right um I don't see how that's right at all and what's so maddening is that the the very thing that makes these places appealing, you know, the bustling community, they look nice, the mm. shops, the restaurants, the bars, or whatever, they can't survive if everyone there is, you know, if every, if every house becomes a second home, they'll all shut. That's uh, a yeah. really good... Um, and, then, and then ultimately you end up, yeah, then maybe everyone it's... sells their second homes and then you sort of complete the loop and the pubs reopen. It's the opposite yeah. of levelling up, isn't it? It's just, it's yeah, yeah. It, 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 to level up communities, you make them functioning for the people who actually live in them 365 days a year. Yeah. I was down in um, uh, Lyme Regis of the weekend. We always look at the property prices. A, they're mental. Uh, and, B, and we, you know, we thought we just wouldn't buy somewhere that then stood empty for ages when you can, you know, have your Airbnb, but at least that might uh -huh. be having, you know, people all year round rather than second home. Oh, we are, we're all just agreeing. We're all just agreeing. Tommy Oxford says... It. Three, three leftist liberal journalists agreeing on something isn't journalism. No, it's a conversation, Tom. It's exciting. Now, we're also going to speak to Harry Barnes. He's behind the Didn't Happen of the Year Awards. It's a Twitter account, uh, which has now become a book. Uh, Harry, morning. Nice to have you with us. Hello, morning. Um, explain what the Didn't Happen of the Year Awards are if, you, if people don't know. Sure. Um, it is a Twitter account that basically calls out uh, anything that didn't happen on the internet. So that could be anything from your friend saying that you went on a night out and uh, started speaking to a, a, a lovely lady, uh, but you didn't didn't believe him. Or it could be anything from uh, somebody trying to make a political point um, about their four-year-old son having a massive opinion on Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so explain. So give us some examples. Give us some some of the concrete examples that you've given you you you've given said award to. So my personal favourite is actually really topical right now with the World Cup being on. It's called Woke Cup and it's actually from the 2018 World Cup. Let me just grab it. <laughs> uh, so it's from a guy, I won't, I won't full name him, uh, but his name is Ben. Uh, and it's very short and simple, which is uh, on the opening day of the World Cup in 2018, he popped on the World Cup to see Russia were playing Saudi Arabia. His 10-year-old said, I don't know who to support here, Dad. Who's got the better human rights record? <laughs> it, make, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, what, what Benson's probably thinking about Qatar right now as well. You, so. you, you've just made, uh, I think you just made James Marriott snort. <laughs> you did, yeah, I did snort, I'm afraid. Uh, the one that I really like, which is your pinned tweet at the moment, is someone tweeting, my six-year-old niece just looked at me and said, does the air always smell like white privilege? Are all of these true, oh genuine, uh, as in... They're not jokes. How do you distinguish, Harry, between what might be a joke and what is uh, people making up things to to virtual signal or whatever? It, it is quite tough now. It used to be a lot easier because before the account became too, uh, as popular as it is now, it used to people used to just tweet stuff and they tweet stuff either to, generally to make a political point uh, or they genuinely just be trying to to lie on the internet for. <laughs> for likes and retweets um but now what it's started to become is there are some people who are trying to follow particular trends to to find themselves on the account so one of them for example going back to the 2016 brexit referendum there was a, a guy called keith said his 96 year old mum um was at the polling station and loudly said uh, which box for uh, which which box do i tick for out for leave uh, and then the polling station apparently all broke into applause and cheers I um, yeah. <laughs> do you remember that one yeah. since that was one of the first ones that originally came uh, on the account on the didn't happen of the year 
Um, but now people follow, like, for example, that particular trend. So they try and sometimes put things into the same pattern. So you can, you can kind of tell if someone's copying a particular pattern. Yeah, it's like they're spoofing, spoofing yeah. them rather than doing them. Um, yeah. I, 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 I was scrolling. They're so good. Uh, my little boy just said completely unprompted. The problem with Liz Truss is she couldn't count. He's six. They're so the good. The children ones are the best, aren't they? Because they're so improbable. And so <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's hard because with the kids, it, there's that line between kids do say stupid stuff. Yeah. They, they sometimes uh, emulate what their parents say. But sometimes when you look at some of these, you know, you can say, oh, well, maybe the kid did say it. Maybe if their parents are really political, they've always got the news on, they talk to their children about politics. But then you go, well, why is your six-year-old so opinionated on... <laughs> <laughs> on, on this thing that should they not just be playing minecraft or something uh, so it's almost it's, it starts to go away from maybe it did happen maybe you're yeah, just yeah, a yeah. bad parent maybe you've just got a very <laughs> peculiar parent my, my favorite thing is when the children always speak and incredibly they don't just say like adult sentiments but they always make like people always like oh my four-year-old said mummy why has boris johnson um defiled the british constitution <laughs> <laughs> like, i just i don't know i'm like <laughs> They're not even trying to make it realistic, but I do like the idea of all these incredibly pious, uh, incredibly well-spoken, uh, very small children using long words and discussing politics in detail. And so, how it's not just—it's not actually just the children. That you'd be surprised uh, how many adults and actually um, celebrities there are. So, I've actually got a question for you: Who's got the 100-meter world record? What right now? For the yeah, for the fastest. Is it—is it Usain Bolt? That's where you'd be wrong, Matt. Oh. It's Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the American singer Britney Spears, because uh, back in during COVID, she posted an Instagram screenshot of um, her claiming to have run 100 metres in her back garden in 5.97 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> With the caption, I ran my first five. Get over, getting over your fear of uh, pushing it is the beginning... Uh, Sorry, getting over the fear of pushing it in the beginning is key. Once I hit that five, usually I run six or seven. So not only has Britney Spears broke Usain Bolt's world record with 5.97 seconds, she does it all the time, hitting six or sevens. Indy Night and James Barrett there. Of course, you can read them in The Times and The Sunday Times every week, but get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're talking cartoons. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, it's the start of awards season. I've come to Westminster for the Elwood Atfield Political Cartoon of the Year Awards. Very grand here in uh, the St John Smith Square. A uh, bit massive concert hall, absolutely ram-packed uh, with all the country's best doodlers and political satirists. Quite a few MPs here as well. Labour's Deputy Leader Angela Rayner and the former Cabinet Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg are here to host the awards. So let me just go in wade through the crowds of selfie hunters and try and get a chat with them. You're presenting the walls tonight, is that right? Uh, along with Angela Rayner, yes. Very good. Yeah. The, the perfect couple. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, the, the divine duet. Do you like political cartoons? Oh yes, I enjoy them hugely. I think they're great fun and they've got a fascinating history as well. But how does it feel being in one? Oh, it's very flattering. I'm always surprised anyone thinks I'm important enough to put in a cartoon. Do you buy them? Some of them. I, I, I've, actually, I've got some I've been given, and I've bought one or two of Matt's cartoons. So whose have you got on your downstairs loo wall? We've got, it is in the loo, we've got several of Matt. We've got one of um, Peter Brook from The Times, of me outside the house with IDS, Theresa Villas, um, and David Davis looking at a very disgruntled Theresa May, who's saying, he's a horrible man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and why do you think they endure? Because we live in a multi-platform, you know, 24-7 media world. Why do you think pol- uh, co- political cartoons endure when it's someone who spends all day sitting with their watercolours and their pen and ink? Well, it's absolutely brilliant for the reader because if you're in a hurry, you find out what the key story of the day is just by looking at a cartoon rather than having to read uh, a long text. And how are you adjusting to your new life as a backbencher? And no longer being in the front. Maybe you will be in cartoons again as the leader of rebellion. Oh, I enjoy being on the back benches. There's much greater freedom uh, to speak my mind. So I'm relishing being back on the back benches. Do you prefer it more, secretly? I'm not going to go that quite that far. <laughs> I, I, look, I enjoyed being a minister. But having the ability to speak out uh, is what politics is about. Have you, do, you, do, you, do you doodle? Do you draw cartoons yourself? Oh, no, no. I can't draw for toffee. <laughs> That's part of the reason I admire the cartoonists so much, because their skill is phenomenal. Who do you think like, captures you best of all the cartoonists? Where, where they thought, oh yeah, they've got me there. Oh Lord, I've never really thought about it from my own <laughs> point of view. But so I haven't, I haven't studied them that closely. And you're presenting the awards tonight with Angela Rayner. That's right. Of all the political wives you could choose, how do you feel about Angela? Well, I, I don't think we should go down the spousal route. <laughs> Uh, uh, Andrew and I are handing out rewards and 
I think she's terrific, actually. She's a highly capable politician and, from a Conservative point of view, dangerously charismatic. Um, is she more charismatic than Mrs Sunak? Um, uh, the leader of our party is a great and charismatic figure. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg, really good to see you. My pleasure, thank you. Right, so that's Jacob Rees-Mogg there. Let's see if I can go and get hold of Angela Rayner. She heads for the door. Angela Rayner, how are you? I'm OK, I'm fine, yeah. It's oh. uh, like being up north now in London because it's a bit chilly. It's a bit cold. You've got your coat on. I've got my coat so you're not on. a proper northerner, have you got your coat on? Oh, shut up. Uh, to be honest, last night I didn't have my coat on. I had my England top on and was winding up my Welsh colleagues. They're not happy with me today. So I'm having to do a lot of work to be nice to them again. So you're at the, the Cartoon Awards. Yeah. Do you get drawn a lot in cartoons? I love the cartoons. I think they're easy to, like, the message that they give is just pretty stark and quite, I do think it's funny, you know, the, I've seen quite a lot of, in fact, I have one of the cartoons up in my house, actually, that I had framed that I thought was really funny. And what, what was it that made you think, because it's a weird thing, so they're basically saying, quite often, you're a Wally, or I don't like you, or you've done something wrong. What makes you get one of the cartoons and puts it up in your downstairs, Lou? It, well, there, there was one of me uh, ser as a home carer serving up to Boris Johnson as like a resident in a care home, which I thought was quite witty. And then there was another one of me um, at the Queen's speech of opening of Parliament, sat next to her saying, Keir panicked and made me, you know, shadow <laughs> Queen. And I thought that was quite witty as well. So, yeah, some of them I, I find hilarious. And they're just poking fun, aren't they? That's what cartoons are about. But there's like the serious sort of side to it as well. And it's like comedy sometimes. It's a way of getting across serious points, putting a, you know, like, Way. And you're here with Jacob Rees-Mogg, yeah. having a laugh with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Some of your colleagues would think, what are you doing here having a laugh with Jacob Rees-Mogg? Well, I was, as some would say, we were having a laugh with him or about him. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, he's a parliamentarian like me. I have respect for parliamentarians. We do a job and, you know, I don't agree with what he says a lot politically, but that doesn't mean to say that, you know, you can't come to events like this together. I'm not going home with him, by the way. No, you're not. He's still in there. <laughs> in fact, he's on stage and we've come outside. And as you've been going out, to try and get you out of the building to have a chat, a lot of people want selfies with you. Now, in the sort of the great barometer of public opinion, there must be times when people don't want selfies with you, and then they do. Does it feel like, like as a barometer, you know, Labour doing well in the polls, has yeah. something changed in terms of, are you doing more selfies, is basically what I'm asking. Yeah, I, th I think that Labour are more popular than they were. I mean, I wouldn't say everyone's running out their house. Most people just don't do politics a lot yeah, of the yeah. time. So uh, I wouldn't say my household name beyond people like us that follow it every day. Um, but yeah, I think people are, you know, not only are they interested in politics more than they've ever been because it's affecting them, yeah. like brutally at the moment, but that also means that people are looking at what politicians are doing because they're seeing the direct impact on their lives. So therefore our profiles are higher and people are listening to what we say and we've got got some really constructed things to say that will make their lives better so I think that is popular. Big quite a shift. But the last time we spoke we sat down at Labour conference. I can't remember who was Prime Minister then. We were waiting to, no it was Liz Truss, it was Liz Truss. It was. That's all been and gone. Yeah. There's been quite a shift in the polls. Labour like pushing for 50%. Yeah. Do you feel more confident now that Labour on course for for power? I'm I'm more confident than I was in 2019 when me and Keir took over, if I'm honest. Um, if you'd have told me then we'd be where we are in the polls, I'd have probably said, uh, I think you've been a bit um, optimistic there. Um, but I knew that we, if we were on course, that we didn't 
you know, deviate and internalise and we actually started to listen to the voters and speak to them, then I knew we could make, uh, make things better than it was. The Tories have clearly helped us, uh, it's fair to say. I didn't expect them to do quite what they did, including crashing the economy. Um, so we are in a better place than we were, but we're not home and dry. And well, I think well, that's the thing we've got to remember. I was going to say that. The headline figures are pretty good. If you look at best prime minister who do you trust on the economy or loads of issues it's a bit more neck and neck it's not in the bag yet is it well not only that i mean as you just said you know a week's a long time in politics in the last couple of months we've had three prime ministers so i do think that you know counting any sort of chickens before they've hatched is not not a good thing to do and people are still you know angry with the labor brand angry with the labor party you know our red wall voters they're still like okay well can we trust you we didn't you know you you hurt us it's an emotional thing and it and and now they're starting to come back to listen to us and we've got to earn their vote again and and we're still in that process I wouldn't say it's a home home run yet have you ever laughed at a cartoon of Keir I, I laugh at loads of I laugh at <laughs> I laugh at cartoons and myself that's why I came here because I just think you know I think it is um, really important I think it's an important part of our media and yeah I mean the, the funniest ones are the ones that poke fun at you aren't they so yeah I have laughed at Keir's and I've laughed at my own Angela you're, you're very much into mouth. really good to see Angela Redder. thanks for joining us thanks Matt take care Angela Wainer there. So that's our host for this evening. Everyone's now uh, gathering uh, at the front of this incredible uh, concert hall for the start of the awards. And Angela Wainer is stepping up to announce the first couple of winners. Um, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and thanks for having me. And thank you to Elwood and Atfield as well for putting on this event. It's a pleasure to be celebrating the awards of 2022 Best Political Cartoons. And what a year it has been. We've had three Tory Prime Ministers, five Chancellors and one Zinger of a midlife crisis down under. I have to say, <laughs> I'm keeping it clean tonight. I've not drank tonight. I had too much last night with the Welsh and the English uh, uh, football. But I have to say, Matt's appearance and I'm a celebrity is the closest I've ever come to voting Tory in my life. Hey. <laughs> You know, I recall the spitting image sketch where Thatcher takes a cabinet out for dinner. The waiter asks her what she'd be eating and she says, I'll have the steak. And so the waiter asks, what about the vegetables? And Thatcher points to her ministers and says, oh, they'll have the same as me. Well, this year, the vegetables who have had their revenge. Yes, less than a month into a government, it's all got a bit tough for Liz Truss, the only Prime Minister to have been outlived by a bit of loose leaf in a wig. <laughs> I mean, we should have known from day one that this was just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> of the issues facing her party. And we still don't know if it voted leaf or romaine. <laughs> Well, you know, Rushy Sunak better be aware himself that pelting of tomatoes could start closer to home than he expected reports about his deputy are to believe. Of course, some will argue that the tomato is technically a fruit. But I refer you to definitive 1893 court ruling that should be classified as a vegetable. And now talking about the 19th century, today... <laughs> Today I'm joined 
as a guest of honour by the former Secretary of State for Victorian Affairs, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Now Jacob resigned from government as Rishi Sunak came to power. Journalists were desperate for the inside scoop, but I'm told he reclined to comment. <laughs> This week he was more vocal, stating that the ripe fruit of Brexit is ready to be harvested. It's only a pity he couldn't find anyone to pick it. Irony, <laughs> truly on life support, or is it? As the late Robin Williams said, people say satire is dead. It's not dead, it's alive and well in the White House. Well, it's strong currency in the halls of Westminster too. <laughs> Now, political cartoons have been a staple of British politics since even before Jacob's time. And long may that continue. And just before I uh, announce the awards, I just want to say one thing. You know, I thought, I thought me and Jacob were, you know, getting on all right. <laughs> Jacob had a stint opposite me in the House of Commons and he even thought, he likes me. <laughs> He kept calling me socialist at the dispatch box, I thought he's flirting. <laughs> anyway, apparently he told Matt Chorley that he wouldn't even call me his co-host wife tonight, so I've got a long way to go, I see. But it is a pleasure to be here with Jacob, and it's a pleasure to celebrate all that you do. And so without further ado, let's turn to tonight's winners. The Mel Cowman Award goes to. I don't know, I've never done presenting. Do I do it for like 10 minutes and really cheese you up? I get wound up when people do that. So it goes to Clive Goddard. So now this is the Pocket Cartoonist of the Year Award. And I've got, I've got to tell Clive that Twitter, it's all bots, mate. Our fee followers aren't real, but never mind, let him think you're going. <laughs> Anyway, the Pocket Cartoonist of the Year goes to Nick Newman. Clive and Nick, congratulations. Uh, Clive, remind me what you won. Uh, I was the uh, Pocket Cartoon of the Year. Pocket car and Nick? I'm Pocket Cartoonist. So explain, who wants to explain what a Pocket Cartoon is different oh. to other oh. cartoons? Well, uh, they're very small. They coined by Sir Robert Lancaster and they fit in your pocket. So um, they're just a succinct uh, summation of the day's news in a, in a fantastically funny form. So it's the sort of thing that in a newspaper is a sort of a, the width of a column rather than the width of a page? Absolutely. Uh, much funnier than a big political cartoon. <laughs> uh, people laugh at them uh, rather than stroke their chins. I'm glad you asked Nick that because I didn't know. <laughs> Is your job harder, do you think, than it was? No, no, harder than doing a big full-width cartoon. We'll come on oh, to the current political no, climate. No, it's much, much easier. I, I've occasionally stood in for the editorial people when they're on holiday or sick, and I hated it. Oh, really? There's much, much greater pressure, shorter deadlines, and the people I was working for were bloody horrible. <laughs> I won't ask you who they were. No. It wasn't the Times, was it? Uh, no, no. Good, oh, thank goodness I, for that. I worked for the Sunday Times, and um, the people I worked there 
work for there are just fantastic. I can't. I mean, and you I, churn I, them out. They, they were I do, yes. in the good old days. Churn, they'd have printed churn. one, and yeah. now they're all in the app and uh, on the phone. And the, you know, there was you do so many digital media. Yeah. You know, they just they just use so, them everywhere. That's not our choice yeah. um, <laughs> as a cartoonist. But, you know, that's just what happens. But, no, it's, it's, it's great. I'm, as a cartoonist, all you want to do is get your stuff out there. Yeah, of course. And if it goes out to a billion people on social media, then that's fine. So let's go to the question of what it's been like the last year doing <laughs> political cartoons. Um, chaotic, troubling, worrying, funny, um, nauseating, bilious. Now tell us what you really think. <laughs> But here's the thing, so I write a column for the Times, which is, you know, it's funny, supposedly funny. And obviously, the things which are great for looking for jokes or somebody's mucked up, you know, we're basically willing on the country to go to the dogs in the hope Ah. that something goes wrong. Ah, Do you find that with, you know, what's good for the cartoonist might not be good for the country? Maybe. I mean, I I think what we what we are doing is poking fun rather than suggesting alternatives. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, It's not really our job to come up with an alternative, but just to point out what is completely wrong currently yeah. if I could come up with opportunities I'd be in a different profession yeah you'd probably be doing a better job and what about you Nick how do you feel like the last year has been um, well it's been brilliant obviously for jokes uh, we've had three prime ministers five chancellors it I mean is uh, Rishi Sunak still prime minister I don't know I, I mean, I'll check been, in a minute I'll we've check. been in I'll here check. for yeah. about half an hour yeah. so uh, it, uh, it could you know the whole situation is just a, a sort of nightmare um, I mean, the, the problem is for, for keeping up with the pace of drawing people. I had just about cracked um, a drawing of Liz Truss when she'd gone. Oh, how unfair is that? That's just such a, so unthinking. If only someone would think of the cartoonists. I know. I mean, she's got no, I mean, it, it's a gift for um, political cartoonists because they, they, you know, they can actually draw. Some of us, um, you know, like pocket cartridges, we don't have to be able to draw terribly well, which is a great uh, bent. But they need to be recognised. So what do you think is going to happen the next year? What what does the next year hold? Oh, well, um, end of the world, obviously. (laughs) Um, Probably by Christmas, hopefully. Or by Saturday, which is my deadline time. As long as it falls on a Saturday, you'll be fine. You you can do the last cartridge. What what about you, Carly? What do you think? That would have been a better question from Mystic Reese Mog earlier. (laughs) He's gone, I think. He's gone home. Yes, he's gone home. Ran, ran. Yeah. Um, what's going to happen? Oh, more, more chaos before the general election, I think, and then we'll get a Labour win. And it's an important, you know, we were t- lots of people tonight have talked about the history of cartoons. They go back such a long way, and the role they play in democracy, and actually just a r- reminding politicians, you know, everyone else puts on a pedestal, their colleagues, the civil servants, their fans, the members and all that, and actually coming along and poking fun of them is quite important. Well, the, the annoying thing is that politicians like cartoons too much. Um, you know, I've, I've, tragically, I have actually sold a cartoon to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, a lot of money, presumably. Yeah, I, I have huge squillions, <laughs> squillions. But it was all in, in, um, in florins and things like that. Uh, so it's probably worth nothing yeah. at all. Um, it, no, it's just, it, you know, however much you want to wound politicians, they just come back for more. Yeah. And the most, you know, the, the biggest signal of failure as a cartoon is to get a call from Geoffrey Archer saying, please, can I buy your cartoon? <laughs> and that's, uh, that's happened to me a few times. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> let's try and raise the mood up. But let's yeah, not, yeah, let's yeah. not end on that note. No. The, importance, the importance of cartoons. The importance, um, well, it keeps people's spirits up during the dark times. Yeah. It, uh, informs a release valve for tension um, it keeps me off the dole that's important yeah, yeah. 
can pay the rent at the end of the month. It's and that's the most important thing? Uh, yeah, I think it probably is. I think it probably is, is right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, Gents, congratulations. Don't forget that big oh, bottle of champagne. And don't lose your rewards. Congratulations. No, really good to see you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. That was Nick Newman and Clive Goddard there. Other prize winners tonight. West Dorset Magazine's Lyndon Wall was runner-up in the Political Cartoon of the Year category. Steve Bright took home the award for Political Cartoon of the Year. There was also a special inaugural Political Cartoonist Solidarity Award for the Ukrainian cartoonist Vladimir Kazanevsky. Uh, but the big winner of tonight, though, taking home the Political Cartoonist of the Year award was The Guardian's Ben Jennings. So, Ben Jennings, Political Cartoonist of the Year. You've got an enormous trophy. Congratulations. Uh, I'm a bit embarrassed about taking that home. Um, that's not going to fit in a pocket, but we'll see. Yeah, what, how did you win Political Cartoonist of the Year? Who knows? Uh, I, you know, I don't think I'm the best, but it was just, uh, you know, awards are always a bit silly and subjective. And, you know, it's nice to be recognised and, and have uh, an evening where cartoons are recognised broadly. But, uh, yeah, I don't know about me specifically. So tell me about this year. It's been ridiculous. Uh, the year, you know, I write columns and I'm on the radio. You do cartoons. In terms of trying to keep across the news, just when you think the news couldn't get madder, yeah. it did. Uh, how's it been for you, your highs and lows of this year? Well, it's a weird one because it's, it's been a year where it's felt like 20 years worth of events and uh, it hasn't happened to me before. It's always been a, a fear in the back of my mind about, you know, story changing midway through a, a deadline and having to start again. It's happened several times this year. A prime minister steps down, a queen dies, quite large events happening, you know, halfway through the day that need um, screw up your previous idea and, and start a new one. So talk me through your day. When do you start forming the idea? When do you start drawing it? When do you have to file it by? So I tend to start, uh, I try and get to my studio as sort of early as possible, start trying to get a gist of what's going on, what the main stories are. Try and get uh, some ideas together by sort of late morning. Hopefully the editors go for them. If they don't, it's back to the drawing board. If they do, which hopefully is more often than not, yeah, I have to crack on and get something done for about between five and six, something like that. So it's very quick turnaround. And who do you like drawing? And obviously there's been a lot of characters that come and go. You could get, in the good old days, we'd have all got used to who the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition was. Who do you yeah. like drawing? And who, do you, who this year have you found a bit of a struggle? I'd kind of got used to drawing Boris a lot and I'd sort of rendered him down to a really basic form of, you know, just a mop of blonde hair, a Pinocchio nose and a big gob. And that allowed sort of a level of flexibility to really stretch the caricature. Um, and so when he came along, Oh, sorry, when he left, it required a rethink when Liz Truss came along and then it almost didn't feel worth even learning to draw her. I kind of got to a certain level and then um, she's gone anyway. Uh, so we're starting all over again. Boris I'd kind of been drawing for a long time and so I'd kind of got, I'd developed a character. I've never enjoyed drawing Matt Hancock, to be honest, and I've done a couple with him recently. So, yeah, I'm kind of glad that he's probably not returning to frontline politics. I don't why is that? Because he's got a sort of blank face. He hasn't got any sort of, ident you know, Boris has got his hair. I don't know, Theresa May's got a shoe, you know, is it just because there's sort of nothing about him that you can latch onto? There are features there, but it's, uh, yeah, it's trying to find those ones that really capture them. And also, it's not just about the physical features, it's about capturing their personality so that the caricature almost looks more like them than they do. And with Matt, I've just, ne yeah, I've never quite found the right way to, to approach it. But, uh... So now you've got Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, what are the things that... Your, your sort of go-to. What do you draw first when you're doing Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer? I mean, Sunak may not have noticed. He's not a, a large man, um, yeah. so that's one thing. And, and he always wears um, suits that are quite tight, a lot of ankle biters. And I guess otherwise quite, like, slick, 
And again, like it's still early days with him. I'd kind of bit used to drawing him in the pandemic, but the caricature is still developing. With Keir Starmer, he's got that kind of, I think I heard it described that he's almost got a comb over, but with hair. Um, <laughs> I think that was, that was Frankie Boyle that said that one. Yeah. But um, the problem with Starmer is sort of staying awake from start to finish uh, when drawing him. That's the, that's the biggest challenge. And it's interesting because you, in your acceptance speech earlier on, you had lots of digs at the toys, partly because we, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg was literally standing there. Yeah. Are you drawing, are you going for the gag or are you going for the sort of political point? Are you, you know, you know there are lots of very powerful cartoons that make a political point. Not always all that funny. It's a bit like columnists. Some yeah. columnists go for the jokes. It's basically what I do. And other people go for the sort of serious political point yeah, or, yeah. or furthering an argument. What do you see as the point of political cartoons? I think it really depends day to day. I mean, the thing I love about cartooning is that it's such a, it's a medium with such dexterity that you can, you know, one day do something quite sort of immature, toilet humour-based gag where you are just trying to be funny. And then other times you're, you're trying to make a really serious point and, and strike a more sombre tone. So... I mean, that's the beauty of it, because you are always got a blank piece of paper that needs to be filled. And, um, yeah, it, it depends on the day as to what tone you try and take. And that was Ben Jennings there, talking about winning his prize. And that brings us to the end of the political cartoon of the year. Although I think it's going to go on for some time yet, uh, because, the, well, the drinks and the canapes are particularly good. But for me, Matt Chorley at the Political Cartoon Awards, that's all, folks. And that's all, folks. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.